Hallelujah. Ah, come on. Can we take about five seconds and just give him praise? Come on, he's worthy of it. Hallelujah, you're worthy of it, Lord. Lord, you're worthy of glory, you're worthy of honor. From the coming up of the sun to the going down of the same, God, you are worthy of all glory and all honor. God, for everything you did, everything you will do, and everything we have yet to see, God, we thank you for what you are and who you are and what it is you're doing. Amen? Oh, we give you glory today, Jesus. Oh, Lord. Lord, I don't, I don't feel worthy at times, but God, I thank you that you allow me to stand to proclaim your word. God, as I get ready to bring forth the message, Lord, I pray that you remove Jeff, that you remove me, that God, I would speak what it is you have for us today. God, that we would hear from you in this moment, and God, we would take your word and apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray for every person in this room and every person that is listening online or will listen in the coming days. God, I ask that every heart be open, every ear be open. And God, we would hear what it is you want to say to the church. And Lord, we give you all glory and all honor for what it is you're going to do today. Amen. Man, I'm excited to be here with you guys. Um, let me say thank you to Pastor Eric, man. <laughs> long, long history there. Long history, but man, I, what this man means to my life. Man, I appreciate you. I'm excited for what God's doing. Amen. I'm going to do something a little bit different than I normally do. I'm going to pull a page out of Pastor Sean's book, book Unity, and we're going to have a story for just a moment. I'm not much of the story guy, but I think this one fits in with the message today. So, so there was a pastor that uh, took over a church. He just moved into town, and he decided that he was going to go visit the members of the congregation um, one by one, especially the lock-ins. He wanted to get to know the ones that couldn't come and be in church anymore, so he wanted to get a chance to introduce himself. So he goes to this young lady's house, and um, she's one of the shut-ins, and she's unable to attend, so he wanted to make sure that she knew him, she knew who he was and what he was here to do, and so he goes to her house, and he knocks on the door, and the young lady invites him in. He goes in, and they sit down, and they begin to talk. And he begins to share his heart with her and letting her know that, you know, I may be new here, but I'm still here for you. Even though you can't be in service every week, even though the circumstances have kept you from being there, I'm still here for you. The church is still here for you. So he sits down with this young lady and they begin to converse back and forth. And he'd been there for a while, sharing his heart, listening to her. <clears throat> and this young lady... Um, was at end stages of life with cancer. And she brought up her in upcoming funeral that would more than likely take place. And she looked at the young pastor and she said, uh, when the time comes, I've got a request for my funeral. 
The pastor said, I'll do whatever I can do. She said, well, the only request I've got is I want you to make sure that when they put me in my casket, there's a fork in my hand. The pastor just looked at her. He said, um, it's a little odd. It's a little, little out there request. You want a fork in your hand? He said, I'm a little confused, but I'll do whatever you need me to do. I mean, I'd probably be the same way, Pastor. I, I'd be like a fork. You don't want a Bible, a teddy bear. You want a fork. So the young lady says, I want a fork. And he says, can I ask why? And she just looked at him. She said, well, growing up, my grandma would fix these dinners. And we would sit down to dinner as a family and as I was younger, she would look at me when she would clear the table and say, keep your fork. I've still got dessert to bring. He said, okay. She said, so as I got older, I always knew to hold on to the fork. Even when she cleared the table, hold on to the fork. Pastor said, okay. So just as was suspected, the young lady passes. Day of her funeral, the pastor does exactly what it was that she asked. People were coming through to view the body, and it, it made the pastor chuckle because every person that walked by the casket always made the same comment. Why is she holding a fork? So the pastor gets up to preach her message, and the pastor decides, I'm going to address this from the get-go. So he stands up, and he says, I heard many of you come through the line and question why she was holding a fork. So the pastor begins to tell everybody in attendance about the young lady's grandmother. And he said, see, what you don't know is what this lady had already received. She understood that when the first meal was done, to hold on to your fork because there was something better still yet to come. So this young lady wanted to hold on to a fork because she knew life may be over, but there was still something better yet to come. That's hope. That's hope. So my message today is hope for a future. Hope for a future. We're going to look at Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 11 real quick. It says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all of the people who Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeshaniah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Eleazar, the son of Shephan, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilakai, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. 
take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I do not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Verse 11 is where we're going to rest most of our time today. And it says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. So let's lay context for a moment. The children of Israel are going into captivity in Babylon. They're in exile. They're being held captive. They're, they're pretty much slaves in this moment. They've got prophets among them that are telling them things that they have not heard from God. And God sends Jeremiah and says, hey, we're going to tell them the truth. You're going to be here for 70 years. That's a hard pill to swallow. You're being told that it's coming soon, and God just flat out says, 70 years, you're going to be here. But God follows it up and tells them, but I know the plans I have for you. Huh. A future and a hope. There, there's something better coming, amen? So as I was growing up, um, there was a little known movie. It wasn't really popular or anything, but um, there was a song in the movie that became one of my favorite songs growing up. It was a song called Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Many people will remember the late Judy Garland for this song and her portrayal of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Probably one of the most iconic movies of all times. I just fell in love with that song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. I've heard so many different versions of it. But um, in her role as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, Judy Garland personified a fervent longing and desperate hope that somehow we might find our way to a better world. See, while she could not predict the particulars of her future, she believed in her heart of hearts that she could and surely would be able to get out of Oz and get back to her true home. That's us as Christians. Deep in our heart of hearts, we don't know what's going to happen on the way there, but I know the end game is heaven. I know where I'm going. Pastor Bobby, when I leave here, I know where I'm going to end up. I don't know what it looks like between here and there, but I have hope.
I hope for you. You're going to go through some things. You're going to deal with some things. But when you come out the other side, you're going to be in a better place than you've ever been. Amen? Hebrews is one of my favorite books on faith. Uh, Hebrews 11. So when the writer of Hebrews begins to describe Abraham's journey in faith in Hebrews 11, he says this, he says, By faith Abraham set out, not knowing where he was going, for he looked forward, he had hope. He looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. They were strangers and foreigners on the earth. They are looking for a homeland. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, He has prepared a city for them. So hope. What is hope? I love, I love to look up meanings. So I'm going to give you a few different definitions of hope. According to the dictionary, hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen, a feeling of trust. Scripture defines hope as this. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, Scripture says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Definition and things not yet seen. Hope is the things we haven't yet seen. There's a couple of more here. Indonesia, the Indonesian definition of hope is this. It, it's the ability to see beyond the horizon. How often have you gone to the beach and you've stood on the beach shore and you've just looked out and it's just blue. That's all you see is blue. I remember right after I got saved, um, well, let me put it this way, when I got rededicated, because I was saved at a young age and I ran, but about 17 years ago, God got a hold of me. And I remember a couple of years after that, man, um, I was standing on the edge of the beach in Panama City Beach, Florida, and I remember just looking out and seeing nothing but blue. And... Uh, I, I waded out in the water just a little bit, Robin. I, I probably got about waist deep. And in that moment, as I looked out to the horizon, I was just overtaken by this consuming feeling of in that moment, in that place, I'm standing in this body of water, and I felt so small and so minute. But what happened is I realized that God was as big as that ocean, and no matter how small I felt, He was going to take care of me. So the Indonesian definition of hope says it's being able to see beyond the horizon, being able to look and say, hey, I, I know what it looks like just ahead of me, but I know there's something even just a little bit further. If I could have gone just a little bit further past the horizon, I would have begun to see new things. So let's break it down to a simple definition. I heard this definition several years ago. And it's simply this. Hope is the simple belief that things can change. I don't care what it looks like in this moment. 
I, I don't care what you see in this moment. Hope just means you keep something inside of you that says, I know it looks bad, but I know there's better yet to come. I know as a nation, things don't look the greatest right now. I know as a world, things don't look the greatest in this moment. I may be the only person in this room, but there's some things in my personal life that I'm sitting and looking at and going, man, that's a big thing that I've got to handle and I've got to do. And I just don't know if it's possible, Pastor, for me to do it by myself. But I'm able to look and hope past that and say, I don't understand how we're going to get here to there, but you've got answers. I imagine that's how the children of Israel felt. I imagine that they're sitting there and they hear the prophet Jeremiah begin to declare this word. And man, how that had to have gripped them deep down inside. Could you imagine thinking that you could go home at any moment and then the prophet shows up and says, you're staying here for 70 more years. You're going to be here. I want you to take I want you to take wives. I want you to have children. I want you to marry your children off. I want them to have children. I want you to take on the welfare of the land because it's becoming your welfare. You're not going anywhere. You're right here for 70 years. And man, all of a sudden, I bet it felt unmountable. I bet all of a sudden they begin to question everything. I know I would. But here comes Jeremiah, and he, he proclaims this word, and he ends there at the end of Jeremiah 29, 11, and he says, for I have a hope, a future and a hope for you. See, Jeremiah addresses a group of people, not individuals. Its promise is God is still in control. A few weeks ago, um, Pastor Sean addressed this unity, if you'll remember, and he made the comment that while um, this is not written for us, it is written to help us. This is written to the children of Israel. But we today can gain from this and learn from this and we can move on past this. Amen? So while Jeremiah is not written directly towards us, it is a promise that we can hold on to. For I know the plans I have for you. For I know the plans I have for you. Think about that for a second. I know the plans I have for you. Eric, if I looked at you and I said, Eric, I know the plans I have for you. Guess what that means? I'm thinking of you. My mind's on you. I, I'm constantly thinking of you. And guess what? That's the same way God is with us. Daniel talked about it in Psalms 40, verse 5. He said, Oh Lord, our God, no one can compare with you. Such wonderful works and mercies are all found with you, and you think of us all of the time with your countless expressions of love, far exceeding our expectations. And in Psalms 139, 17 and 18, he said, every single moment you are thinking of me. How precious and wonderful to consider that you cherish me constantly in your every thought, O oh God. 
Your desires toward me are more than the grains of sand on every shore. When I awake each morning, you are still with me. I want you to know today, God thinks of you. God's got you on his mind. You're not alone in this thing. You're not having to figure this out by yourself. He's already got, a, got a, something working out that you don't even understand yet. His mind is set on you today. Spurgeon says this. Spurgeon said, the Lord not only thinks of you, but towards you. His thoughts are all drifting your way. God not only thinks of you, but he thinks towards you. He's constantly keeping you on his mind. And the prophet goes on to say to give you a future and a hope. That literally translates an end and a hope. I'm giving you a future and a hope. He literally translates that into an end and a hope. So Jeremiah is talking to the children of Israel here. We're going to jump over to Lamentations. Chapter 3, 21 through 24. Jeremiah again, talking to the children of Israel again in exile. And he begins to address them. So Lamentations 3, 21 through 24. It says, but this I call to mind... And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. You know what's interesting is I just read you two scripture or two passages of scripture, both by the prophet Jeremiah. Let me just let you know, the prophet Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He was often known to bring harsh words from the Lord. But here in both of these situations, you see where Jeremiah gets a chance to remind the children of Israel there's still hope. Even in the midst of everything you're going through, there's still hope. So let's look for context for a second. I know I read 21 through 24, but if you look back just to verses 19 and 20, it says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. You see, Jeremiah was in a place where he needed hope in this moment. How many people need hope? How many people are in a place where you're saying, I don't get it anymore. I, I can't do this anymore. I can't make it anymore. And if you don't step in right now in this moment, I don't know where I'm going to end up. Maybe I'm alone. I don't know. I can't tell you the nights I've sat on the side of my bed and said, God, I don't know if I can do it on my own. This thing's too big for me. This thing is too immeasurable for me to take on. And man, in those moments, I need him to, I need to remind myself that he's thinking of me. I need to remind myself there's still hope for this thing. See, hope arrives as the prophet has sunk to a low spot. I'm here to tell you, even if you're in the lowest of places today, 
hope will arise in the middle of your low spots. I don't care how far you've gone. I don't care how far you think you've moved away from him. Hope will arrive in those moments. David said this. David said, even if I make my bed in the pits of hell, there will you be with me. I don't care how far you go. I don't care how hard you run. He will find you. I was saved at a young age, Robin. By the age of 12, I knew I had a calling upon my life. But man, through, through life and through things that happened, I found myself running. Mary, and I understood what David said when he said, if I make my bed in the pits of hell, there you'll be. Because there was a time in my life, it's so amazing to me. This is the first time I've come to Marshall County to preach, y'all. I spent a lot of time in Marshall County. I lived in Marshall County. But see, the last time I was in Marshall County, I wasn't standing in church houses. I was in the drug house. I'm just going to be honest. Because I ran. I ran, Eric. I spent a lot of time in drug houses in Marshall County. I looked at my father-in-law on the way up here, and I forgot what we was talking about. And I said, well, you know, a lot of people refer to this area as Meth Mountain. You know why? Meth is rampant in this area. You know how I know? I've been in my fair share of meth houses. I never did meth. But, man, I took a lot of friends to the meth house. So today I'm standing here in a different situation. And I look back to that now and I go, God, I see now what David was saying. If I make my beds in the pits of hell, there you're going to be. Because even then, God was still with me. Because what I didn't realize was that in 2007, I was going to get married. That was a big deal for me. Because when me and my wife started dating, Eric will tell you, I was anti-getting married. I was the one, I'm not getting married. Within a year, I'd proposed. Something about her hooked me. I don't know what it was, but it, she hooked me. So as we were getting ready to plan a wedding, when we started planning the wedding, um, we started looking for all these different venues. We wasn't going to do a church wedding. I wasn't in church at the time. She wasn't in church at the time. We weren't going to do a church wedding. Well, all of a sudden, out of the blue one day, she was like, I want to do a church wedding. <laughs> Anything you want, we'll do it. We'll, we'll do a church wedding. Yeah. So um, in that same year, the man who was my pastor growing up retired. And I'd heard that he was retiring. My grandmother still went to the church I grew up with. So she had told me, hey, Pastor Arnold's retiring. So I looked at Amanda. I said, hey, I'm going, I'm going to see him on his last Sunday. I want to be there. I want to hear his last message. I want to tell him bye. I want to tell him thank you for everything. Because he was supposed to be moving to Texas. So we go. Man, the service was good. You ever been in those services? You don't really want to be there. You could care less about being there. You just there because somebody said something was happening. 
So you showed up. And, man, the service was good, Bobby. It was good. I remember leaving that day going, man, that was good. But I went home and started drinking again. But the next Sunday come, and I get up, and I was doing wrestling at the time. So usually I'd sleep in on Sundays. I woke up that Sunday morning, and Amanda's getting ready. I said, where are you going? She said, I'm going to church. Where are you going to church at? I'm going back to where we went. Okay, I'll get ready. So I get ready. We go back to church. Well, this just starts happening. Every Sunday, she says, I'm going to church. Every Sunday, I'm okay, I'll get ready. Let's go. Well, after about a month of being there, she's like, hey, I want to get married in your church. Okay, if that's what you want to do. I want the pastor to marry us. If that's, if that's what you want to do. Mike was through this whole roller coaster with me. He can, he can tell you about it. So we end up doing the church thing Sunday after Sunday. I'd drink in the bar on Saturday night, and I'd be in church on Sunday. I'd drink on Saturday night, and I'd be in church on Sunday. So all this happens, and I'm doing it just to appease her because she said she wanted to go to church. She said, I want to get married in the church. And then she looked at me and said, if we're going to get married in the church, I want to be going to the church. So I'm just still appeasing her this whole time. Well, a weird thing happens. September comes around. We get married on September 21st. We did the church wedding. The pastor married us. I had my groomsman. Eric was standing beside my side. She had her bridesmaids. We did the church wedding. We go on our honeymoon. We come back home on Saturday. The craziest thing happened, Robin, because on Sunday I got up and got ready and went to church. I still don't know. The next Sunday I got up and I got ready and I went to church. And that kept happening. So fast forward to October. I'm in a church service. Now I've been going back and forth to services since probably May or June of this year. I'd responded to altar calls. I'd felt all the feelings in praise and worship. This one Sunday in October, I responded to the altar call. I make my bed in the pits of hell. There you'll be with me. Remember, that's what I told you David said, right? That Sunday morning, I go up for the altar call. I'll never forget the man of God come by and pray for me. I turned around to leave, Eric. And if I took you to the place today, I could take you to the spot it happened in. Because when I turned around, a lady in the church walked up to me and looked me straight in my face. I'd been saved at a young age. I'd, I knew I was called the ministry at a young age. I ran as hard as I could run. I was living in bars. I was living in drug houses. I was running with people I should have never run with. I'm playing church with the best of them till this moment. And all of a sudden, I'm face to face with a lady in the church, and she looks me dead in my eyes. And she said, you're playing games. And God said, the games are over. He said, either today you are in the church or you're in the world because one foot in the door and one foot out don't work any longer. And the next thing I knew, Eric, I was picking myself up off the floor because I'd been there for I don't know how long 
because the power of God had hit me because what I found in that moment was what David proclaimed. No matter where I am, there you are. It doesn't matter how hard I run. It doesn't matter how hard I fight. It doesn't matter how hard I try to get out of it. You're going to find me every time because your word says you have a future and a hope for me. Your word says you're constantly thinking about me. So it doesn't matter how far we go, he's right there. Hmm. So when we reach a place when we feel all hope is lost, if we'll simply look up in the distant future, we'll see a renewed hope just on the horizon. Lamentations 3.21 holds a special place in my heart. If I was to carry you to my house and I was to walk you into my bathroom, right to the right-hand side of my mirror, there's an index card. That index card has been hanging beside my mirror since 2016. The index card's there because in that time, whoo, we was in one of the biggest struggles of our lives. I got sick that year. I'd gone to work on a Monday night and started having what I felt was pain in my back. And I think I talked to Mike and all of them throughout the night and just said, I'm just, I'm just hurting my back. I said, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to go home and ice. I shut, I was working in a restaurant as a manager and I, I shut the restaurant down that night and I cleaned up and I went home, grabbed an ice pack and I sat down and I started hurt. I felt like I was, I was just getting cold. I checked my temperature and I had a temp of 101.6. Now keep in mind, I run low grade temps. My temp on any given day, if you just check it right now, is 96.4. So I'm sitting here with 101 degree fever and I was freezing. I threw all these comforters on me and quilts on me and I'm sitting in my chair and I stayed there all night just shaking. Amanda woke up the next morning and she came in there and she said, I could hear your chair vibrating from the bedroom. Are you okay? I said, I, I don't feel good. I've been sick all night. She said, you need to go to the doctor. So I went to the doctor. I get to the doctor and they're like, you got the flu. Take this, go home. You'll be better in about two to three days. So I did. I'd had the flu in the past. It goes away two or three days. Crazy thing is, on Thursday, I'm supposed to go back to work on Friday. On Thursday, I'm still running 102-degree fever. It would break, and within 30 minutes, it would shoot back up. I'd get it to break, in 30 minutes, it would shoot back up. So I called the doctor, and I was like, look, I'm supposed to go back on Friday. Still running this high-grade fever. Can you write me out? She said, I'm not just going to write you out. You've got to come back. Okay, so on Friday, I go back to the doctor. She says, be here at 11. We close at 12. I'm just going to work you in. I said, okay. Mike come and got me, carried me to the doctor. I go in. They start looking things over, and they're like, you're running high-grade fever. Doctor will be in with you in a few minutes. So I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, I start coughing. And I looked at Mike, and I said, hand me some tissues real quick. Hands me tissues, and I cough. And when I look down, my hand and the tissues are filled with blood. Scared me. Scared me bad. They got the nurse in, got the doctor in. 
They said, straight to the hospital, don't stop. We're calling them now. I get to Gadsden Regional. They start running all these tests. They said, we're putting you in ICU. We'll have the answers as much as we can in the next little bit. So they end up coming up and they're like, how long have you been sick? I said, three days. They said, Mr. Mathis, your sepsis. You've got bilateral pneumonia and your organs are on the verge of shutting down. Have you ever had this happen before? I said, no, ma'am. I've never been this sick. They start running test after test after test. The scripture was one of the things that got us through that time. Because the only thing I remember laying in ICU, I was by myself. I was alone. They wouldn't let anybody in there with me. I was scared to death. All I needed to do was put on praise and worship music and read my word. I kept my Bible beside me the whole time. I remember just laying there saying, God, you've got to do it because nobody else can. I remember the doctor coming in. And she looked at me and I said, can I ask you something? She said, what? I said, how bad is it? She said, Mr. Mathis, you've got, you've got a lot going on. She said, I'm not sure where you're going to end up just yet. I said, how long am I going to be here? She said, you've got a long stay ahead of you. And I remember in that moment looking at her, and I, she thought I was crazy, but I looked at her that night, and I said, I won't be in ICU more than a day. She just laughed at me. She said, I've seen people a lot less worse than you that was here for a lot more time than a day. She said, so I like your optimism, but it's not going to happen. But I held on to limitations. And I'm here to tell you I told her 24 hours I would be out. I came out of ICU in 22 and a half hours. Because when I reached one of the lowest moments of my life, and every time my family would walk out of the room, I didn't know if it was going to be the last time I said I love you or the last time I said goodbye. I didn't know what was happening in that moment. I was at the place that I was broken and I was scared and I was terrified. The only thing I could hold on to was that there was hope for me. Lamentations became special to me. When me and my wife was going through the process of adoption, man, there was a lot of trials and ups and downs and heartache. And Ooh, if you've never been through adoption, it's just as bad as giving birth, if not worse. So much heartache that goes through it. Lamentations is what got us through. We reminded ourselves every day that there was hope here. Verse 22 in Lamentations. I was reading out of the ESV. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. If you look back at the King James Version, it says it this way. It says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. As beat down and as defeated as the children of Israel in Jerusalem and Judah were, they were not consumed. As beat down and defeated as I was, I was not consumed. This thing hadn't overtaken me yet. See, there was still a remnant left with a promise of restoration. 
He don't require a lot. He just requires a remnant. We got two startup churches. Unity Church, Forge, hear me. He doesn't require a lot of people. He just requires a remnant. If he can just get a few people that says, I still believe this thing can happen. If I've got just a few people that says, I don't care how it looks, we're going to make it. I don't care if the finances are right. I don't care if the numbers are right. He said, do it, and we're going to do it, and we're going to make it through it. I don't need a lot. I just need a few. There was a remnant that still believed that there was a promise of restoration. See, wherever God leaves life, he leaves hope. Wherever God leaves life, he leaves hope. I love verse 23. That first sentence says, they are new every morning. They are new every morning. See, each dawning day gives hope in fresh mercies and compassions from God. I don't care what it looks like. The word says the night is far spent and the day is at hand. I've come to tell somebody today that every morning ends the night. Every morning brings a new day. Every morning brings new provisions for that day. Every morning brings new forgiveness for new sins. Every morning brings new strength for new temptations, new duties, and new trials. See, every morning you get new mercies from Him. You don't have to go knowing you only have an allotted amount because every day you wake up, He's providing you with new mercies to face the things that you've got to face in that day. He's not leaving you and He's not forsaking you. He's right there with you all the way through. See, all of this caused the prophet to consider the great faithfulness of God. That he never fails in sending his mercies and compassions. Verse 23 ends with, great is your faithfulness. Have you ever been to the spot when you were so beat down and you look back and he showed up right on time when you didn't know if it was going to happen and you look back and all you can do is say, great is your faithfulness to me. I couldn't do it. I didn't see a way how, but you showed up just like you said you would show up. I was sitting this morning. I told my father-in-law on the way here this morning, I woke up early. It was before 4 a.m. I was wide awake. And I pulled up my message and I started going through it and I, I made some changes. And one of the things I thought about as I was reading this, all of a sudden the hymn hit me. Great is thy faithfulness. I'm not going to try to sing it to you because my throat is so dry right this moment. But let me read you the words to that hymn. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, forever you'll be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all of nature in manifold witness. 
to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. <laughs> Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheap and to God. Strength for today and brought hope for tomorrow. Bless, blessings all mine with ten thousand. Great, Great is thy faithfulness. Man, that song is so powerful. If you continue reading on through Lamentation, if you continue reading the Lamentations, you see Jeremiah begins to address God personally. If you read just down past that, all of a sudden after he says, great is thy faithfulness, he said, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth. All of a sudden in this place, Jeremiah begins to turn his thinking. And all of a sudden he changes from being in a place of despair to being in fellowship with the living God. He changes the way he's beginning to talk. He quits talking about how things are hard, and all of a sudden he starts talking about how good God is. If you're here today and you're at a place where you're finding yourself saying, I don't know if I can keep going, let me encourage you. Change the way you're thinking and quit thinking about how hard it is and start thinking about how good God is. Because God is good. He is faithful. His mercies endure forever. He has come to give you a hope and a future. I've come all the way to Guntersville, Alabama to let somebody know there's hope for you today. I believe with all that I have that there's good things on the horizon. I believe with everything I have that the Ford Church is going to prosper. I don't care how hard it looks. I don't care if you don't think you've got anybody with you, Eric. You stand strong. Don't move. Come here for a second. had a scripture all week and I didn't know why. I told Michael, well, here, I said, I can't, I can't figure this thing out. Like, I, it's hope and I don't know how to get here, but this scripture keeps coming back. And it's you. See, there's a scripture in Acts 17. Paul is addressing the area of Pegasus. If you know the scripture, he's walked through the city of Athens. And as he addresses the area of Pegasus, he says, I perceive you to be very religious because I've seen all of the statues to all of the gods. See, there was a time in Athens where they didn't know who to follow and who to believe. So they just set sheep free. And then the sheep run. Well, wherever the sheep laid, they would find the nearest temple, and whoever that temple was built to, they would put a monument up to that god. 
But the only problem is there was a few sheep that didn't lay near temples. So when that happened, they just put up a statue, says, to the unknown God. They wanted to cover their bases. So Paul begins to address them, and he begins to tell them about this unknown God. I know you feel like you're outnumbered at times, but Paul got a boldness in this moment because he's standing before people that had his entire rest of his life in their palms. And he takes this moment and he looks at him and he says, let me tell you about your unknown God. He's Jesus. He's the son of man. He came and lived a blameless life. He died. He was crucified. He was buried in a tomb and he rose on the third day. He begins to preach the gospel of Jesus like nobody else with boldness. And this is the part that stuck out to me. He says this line. He says, he set the very boundaries of your existence and the times of your life. I don't care how hard you feel it is in this moment. I, I don't care how hard you think it is right here and right now. God said to tell you, I've set you here because I need you here. This time, this moment, this location, it's about you and your calling. It's about you and your purpose. It's about you and your destiny. Nobody else can do what you can do. Nobody else can say what you can say. Nobody's going to impact the people that you're going to impact. This isn't about anybody else. This is about Eric Madden. This is about the destiny that you have. This is about the calling that you have. He said, I know what you've done in the past. I've seen where you was, but new hope is here. New destiny is here. New purpose is here. This is about you, Eric. This is about you, brother. He knows where you are. And he knows what time it is. I know it's hard. You're trying to start up a new church. I know you feel like you're fighting this thing alone, but I want you to know, look up to the horizon. Find out who's out ahead of you, because even if nobody else is beside you, he's already prepared a way for you. This is your time. This is your moment. This is your calling. It's all about you. Don't worry about anybody else right now. Set your eyes to him. Believe for him. When nobody else will do it, preach Jesus. When nobody else will do it, show Jesus. I don't care if nobody else is standing beside you. I don't care if you're standing before the courts. Proclaim Jesus. Claim him over your family. Claim him over your friends. Claim him over your city. This is your moment. He set you here for now. I couldn't figure it out all week, man, and I saw you standing back there, and all of a sudden I realized it was about you. I thought for the longest maybe it was about the churches because we had two startups, but no, man, it's about you. It's your time. It's your moment. You ready? 